turn to Hebrews 10. And I want to read uh, Hebrews 10, starting in verse 26 to start. And this is going to emphasize kind of our main, uh, our main idea for today. And I want to, I want to preface this for you. This, uh, this main idea is challenging. And when I started the week and began studying and uh, wrote this main idea down, I sat there for a while and prayed over this one thought because it's absolutely crucial and yet it's often jumped over and skipped over when we think about salvation, when we think about what the church is called to. And so if you, if you get nothing else out of this message today, I want to challenge you with this phrase. And I'm gonna, we're going to reinforce that in Scripture. This is, this is pulled from truth, okay? I don't want you to assume... Uh, and if you ever hear me say something and go, well, Matt, that sounds like your opinion, not God's truth. I want you to call me out on it. All right. Because that's that's my prayer. My desire is that uh, God's word, God's truth would be spoken, not my perspective or my opinion. OK. But hear this. Apart from recognition of our own sin, Christ's sacrifice is powerless. Apart from recognition of our own sin, Christ's sacrifice is powerless. Now, read in Hebrews 10, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expound upon this a little more. Starting in verse 26, it says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment... And a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be delivered by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, again, what I'm emphasizing by this statement is this truth not that Christ's sacrifice is void of power at all. Rather, in our own personal lives, If we fail to recognize our own sin, His sacrifice is powerless for us as people. That is, apart from recognizing our sin, apart from recognizing our guilt, why did Jesus have to die? And by me saying, if I state... That I'm not living in sin, I'm not a sinful being, then at the same time I am saying, I have no need for the sacrifice that Christ made. And it brings to root this reality that apart from recognition of our own sinfulness, Christ's sacrifice is powerless. Now imagine for a second that you are sitting in a courtroom... And you hear 
the sound of the gavel. This is really not working for that. In my head, that was a lot better. You can picture in your head, though. Have you ever thought about what might happen if your life was put on trial? Who would stand in your corner? Who would stand against you? But maybe more importantly, what would the judge determine as the outcome? What would happen? Now, that's kind of an intimidating scene to picture in our own minds. But whether we recognize it or not, this day is imminent for each one of us. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what I, what he, for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, sometimes as followers of Christ, especially within the church, I think we get this perception that the judgment is only for those who have not chosen to follow Jesus. And we forget that throughout Scripture there is much evidence to state that each and every one of us will stand before God and give an account for how we chose to spend our lives. No one is exempt from this. Everyone gets equal treatment in the kingdom of heaven when it comes to judgment. And in the same way, everyone here while on earth has equal opportunity to embody what God has called us to. No one has more opportunity than someone else. Each one of us at any given time could look around us and see all kinds of instances where we can model this and walk as Jesus did. It comes down to what we choose to do, how we choose to live that way. But today we're going to jump back into the biblical narrative in Matthew 27. So I'd encourage you to turn there. And just to rehash a little bit while you're getting to Matthew 27, last week we walked through the first part of this narrative in Matthew 26. And we looked specifically at the lack of understanding that the disciples had. Even though Jesus had spoken these truths, even though they had walked with Jesus in person, and he'd warned them, he'd talked to them and said, the time is coming. I'm, I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be killed. And he even predicted his resurrection. And yet there was still this lack of understanding. And we talked about how often in our own lives we have this plan in our minds about how things are going to happen. And when our plan doesn't happen the way we anticipated it would, we panic. We fall apart sometimes. And the emphasis last week was, don't allow my plan to speak louder than God's purposes. And so now we pick up in the next part of this narrative this morning. And what I want to do for us today as we're reading through this is I want to, I want to look at Christ's response. And then I want to evaluate how we would respond. Or more specifically, how as humans we generally respond. Whether that be culturally or just in our own humanity. And doing this all under the lens of recognizing that apart from, my, from recognition of our own sinfulness, Christ's sacrifice is powerless. 
And so coming to this text in verse, verse 1, and we're going to jump around a little bit here. Chapter 27 says, when morning came, recognize at this point Jesus has already been arrested. All right, he's already been taken into captivity. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Jump to verse 11 with me. So this, now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer. Not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed the feast being Passover, just to clarify that, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife, that being Pilate's wife, sent word to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two of two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas! Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified! And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified! So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Now this is one of those narratives in Scripture, church. That we're in danger of becoming numb to. When we read this, it should bring a weightiness. Because the reality is, the people that stood in the courtyard and yelled, Let him be crucified! They were probably much like you and me. And the more the crowd went that direction, the more they followed and even as we saw the disciples ran in fear because they didn't know what was going to happen. But I want to highlight something that Scripture points out specifically, not just here, but even in the Old Testament, about how Jesus responded in the face of this. And that's that Christ was silent 
in the face of falsehood. None of these accusations that were brought before the council, were brought before Pilate, were accurate. They were false claims that were made to convict and make Jesus look really bad. And even we see Pilate's response and he's going, what has this man done? What is he guilty of? And yet even Pilate went with the flow of where the crowd was leading. To the point that he washed his hands in front of them and said, my hands are clean of this. It meant there was a guilt within him, right? To go, this man is not guilty. But these people, this is what they want, and I'm for the people. So it, you do it. I, you know what? I'm washing my hands. I'm not responsible for this. You do it. As the crowd yelled all the more, let him be crucified. Now, put your finger in Matthew 27 and flip back to Isaiah 53 with me. All the way back in the Old Testament... And if you hit Psalms, you've gone too far. Isaiah 53. Specifically, look at verse 7 when you get there. Isaiah 53 is believed to be one of the foremost messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Describing and depicting what was going to happen to the Messiah. And in verse 7 of Isaiah 53, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the living, the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now Jesus embodied these truths. And we see this in the narrative read in the Gospels, that his response to these accusations, to what's happening and what's going on around. Now, if we turn that and we shift that and all of a sudden we look at ourselves and our own tendencies, we defend our innocence. And we're really good at doing this. We're really good at making excuses or The term I think I hear the most is, I was justified in the way I acted, or the way I responded. I was justified in speaking that way to my family. I'm justified in 
talking about this person in this way because of how they've treated me or because of what's taken place. I've justified in my desire to do my own thing and enjoy my own comfort rather than stepping outside of that to do what God has called me to. It goes on and on and on and on. But if we're not careful, what we start doing is we start justifying our sin. Sin being that which does not measure to God's righteousness. So if you ever want to question, well, how do I know that I'm really a sinner? I want you to look at the person of Jesus and how he lived and how he focused his time, his energy and what he spoke, what his purpose was. And then look at yourself and ask yourself the same questions. If you want to go even further, highlight and look at areas of Scripture, read through books like Philippians or the book we just finished, Ephesians, in the Bible. And as you're going through, circle the commands of Scripture and then ask yourself, am I meeting all of those? And the obvious answer is no, I'm I'm not. But we have some really good reasons, right, for why we're not. We like to justify that. Oh, you know what? I, that's someone else's thing. I, I'm just, this is more my personality. Whatever the reason may be, we often become masters of defending our innocence. What would our response have been in the place of Christ? We can readily admit and even see visibly around us that we are always seeking to prove in some sense or another that I'm a good person. This goes all the way back. This this doesn't start with us, by the way. This goes all the way back to the first sin in the book of Genesis, right? Where Adam and Eve got his place in there and he's given them one command. Don't eat the fruit on this tree. And when they disobey, when they've sinned, when they've fallen short of that, all of a sudden, they start playing the blame game, right? Oh, God, it wasn't me. It was this woman that you placed with me. I, well, and the woman says, well, no, God, it wasn't me. It was there's the serpent that tempted me. Again, seeking to defend our own innocence in the midst of that. If we ever question why Christ had to die, it is for every instance that you and I demand we are innocent when we are guilty. For every instance of that. Every time we justify our actions, our sinful actions, that burden was placed on him. Now let's continue this narrative and see what happens next. Let's pick up in verse 27. It says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. 
And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and took the reed, and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon, by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. In considering what the people were yelling and deriding at Jesus as He hung on the cross, Their terminology, the phrase they kept repeating is, save yourself! You claim to be all-powerful, save yourself! And yet, still no response. Christ was challenged to save Himself, as we see. And if you look at the way we respond... And goes back to our tendency to defend and try to prove our innocence. We are a people who is consistently trying to save ourselves. Now, 
as we think about that more, I was uh, recalled a story I'd read about. A group of young Christian brothers were gathered together to take a swim uh, in one of the many creeks that run through the countryside uh, in China. And since most were not good swimmers, they were careful to remain close to the bank so as not to get in water over their head or to be swept downstream. And while they were being cautious and careful, one of the guys got a little too far out and began floundering. He was struggling to keep his head above water and he realized the others had gotten out already and were uh, starting to dry off and be done. And he realized the only hope he had was to call out for one of them to come help him, to save him. And so he's floundering, he can barely keep his head above water. He starts yelling, help, help, save me, guys, help me, save me. And one of the brothers in Christ that was a part of that group was a trained lifeguard, as someone who was trained in rescuing people in those type of situations. And so everyone looked to him and said, hey, are you going to help him? And he saw the one floundering in the water and he stood there and continued to wait. He didn't go after him. And by this point, the others in the group are panicking. They're, why, what are you doing? He's, he's going to drown. And eventually, the man is floundering. He, he could not hold himself up anymore. And his head went underwater and they stopped seeing him. And at that point, this one who was trained swam out, successfully grabbed him and pulled him back into shore with no problem at all. Now, obviously, this brought about some questions for those others in the group. Why did you wait so long? Why did you wait for him to get to this point before you pulled him out? And very calmly, the one who was trained said, if I had swam out to get him while he was continuing to try to save himself, he surely would have grabbed onto me and pulled me under with him. I had to wait until he was completely spent and recognized that he was not going to do anything to save himself before I was able to successfully do that. He must come to the end of himself and cease struggling, cease trying to save himself. Only then can he be helped. Now, in Romans chapter 10, it tells us that there is... How many righteous people? What does it say? None. Everyone say none. There is none righteous. No, not one. And it goes on later in that chapter. It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet we, like the man who's floundering, So often we feel that that's where we're at. And we're crying out to God and say, God, why don't you help me in my situation and what I'm dealing with? I'm doing everything I can. Have I recognized fully my need for complete and total dependence upon Christ? Because until I get to that point... The sacrifice of Christ lacks the power that it's ready to give. Jesus died. His part is done. It's paid in full. 
But if we don't recognize that we have a need for the payment of our sins, then we continue to flounder. Church, this is so crucial to our understanding of the whole gospel. Because until we recognize our own need for this, it lacks meaning, it lacks purpose, and it lacks the power to transform. Because if I don't see in my life the need for anything to be changed, then what am I seeking for God to do in my life? And we would honestly say most of the time it's our own personal desires. Well, hey, if I believe in Jesus, maybe I'll make more money. Or maybe I'll get out of debt sooner. Or maybe my family problems will cease. Or maybe I'll actually, all of a sudden, I'll be able to share the gospel with other people more clearly. And I'll have confidence again. And for us to understand... That the root of the promise in Scripture, the root of the good news through Christ, the root of this story, this narrative, is because of our sin that there is power in the cross. It's because of our weakness that there's power in the sacrifice of Christ. And if we nullify that and we say, I'm good, but I want Jesus as my side buddy, we are not pursuing A life that embodies the power that is offered through the sacrifice of Jesus. We have to first recognize and stop trying to save ourselves. Let's look at verse 57 and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. It says, when it was evening there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. And said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away, and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers, go make it secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Christ was innocent but condemned. Christ was innocent but condemned. In 2 Corinthians 5, later on in the passage... It says, for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Pilate recognized it. Surely there was other people who recognized it. This man hasn't done anything of guilt. 
hasn't done anything wrong. And yet condemned. Crucified. And yet we are condemned but counted free in Christ. Now, to emphasize this final point, to focus on this reality of true freedom only being found in Christ, as we consider this, I've got three passages I want us to read. But I want, I'm going to have you read them. Okay? So, I'm going to have one person read each of these passages out loud because I want people, I want us to consider these things. I don't want this to be something that we just hear on a Sunday morning and speak from up here and you go, yeah, that's what the Bible says. I want us to read and understand the freedom that's offered in Christ. So three passages and I want three different people to look these up and I'll bring you the microphone. The first one is Acts chapter 13 verses 38 and 39. Acts chapter 13 Verses 38 and 39. The second one, someone else looked this up, is Romans 6, 20 through 23. Romans 6, 20 through 23. And then the last one is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Okay? So, the first one being Acts chapter 13. Okay? Acts chapter 13. Who's got that? Who's got Acts chapter 13? Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Everyone who believes is set free. Think about that. But think about at the same time that in order for me to believe in the name of Jesus to be saved, I first have to recognize that I need to be saved. I have to start there. God, I can't do this on my own. I need you. Everyone who believes is set free. A justification that was not achievable simply under the law of Moses. Simply under the practice of doing this on my own. Okay? All right, Romans 6. Who has Romans 6? When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Did you catch that? That process? When you were a slave to sin, you were not a slave to righteousness, being in the sense that you were not held accountable to the standard by which God says, this is what I ask of you. But then the question after that is, what fruit did that bear? Did that really benefit you? And it says, well, these things all lead to death. And yet, when you're set free from sin and you become a servant or a slave to Christ, the reward is eternal life. 
to be set free from the bondage that I once was held in, I first have to acknowledge that I am in bondage to something I shouldn't be in. And then the last one, Ephesians chapter 2. Who, who had Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Amen. For you have been saved by grace through faith. And this is not of works. That means it's nothing you can do. Turn to your neighbor and say, there's nothing you can do. But understanding at the depth of this, that it starts, transformation in my life starts when I recognize that I am sinful and I need a Savior. In closing this message today, I want you to flip in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. And this... brings into account the story of a man who was searching, he was yearning for truth. He didn't quite understand what was going on or how to understand the depth of what Scripture was communicating. And so God brought a man to communicate that to him. Acts chapter 8. And I'm going to start in verse 26. It said, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Verse 27. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him. I love that. God says, hey, there's someone you need to go talk to. Go. And he runs. And heard him, he heard the eunuch reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And the eunuch said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Look at this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? Sound familiar? And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom... I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, and Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. 
And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. Now this message this morning is focused on a recognition that I need a Savior. That Jesus died, not because he was guilty, but because I am. And as a response to that, and as we consider the struggle of committing and saying, I'm going to follow Jesus, we're going to end this service in a little bit different way. And maybe you're here today and you're going, that's me. I recognize, maybe for the first time, it makes sense to me that I am a sinful person in need of a Savior. Or maybe you've been wrestling with this for some time and God has been working on you and it clicked today and you go, I, I understand. I, I believe, I believe that He saved me. I believe that Jesus is the only way to eternity. And when we make that decision, when we make that choice, Scripture tells us that in obedience and in testimony to what God has done, we get baptized so that everyone sees that I make a public profession that I am not the same person that I once was.